You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm DJ Patil, Head of Technology at Devoted Health, Senior Fellow at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School, and former U.S. Chief Data Scientist. I couldn't be more pleased and thrilled to talk to three amazing people today. Jennifer Polka, former Executive Director of Code for America, Raylene Young, former engineering executive at Facebook and Stripe, as well as a fellow at the Aspen Institute. And Raphael uh, goes by Raph Lee, former engineering executive at Lob and Airbnb. Jennifer, Raph, and Raylene are founding team members of the U.S. Digital Response, a nonprofit organization that through a team of volunteers, technologists, provides pro bono services to governments and organizations dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Raylene also serves as the organization's CEO. If you'd like to ask them a question, please ask in the chat if you're watching on YouTube or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook. And so maybe to get started, you know, the place I want to, 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 to kind of start this conversation with is almost rewinding the clock back and, and to, to where we were. And it's, it's hard to, to remember, but, you know, it hasn't been that long uh, since, since you all came together. March 16th, you know, that was 133 days ago or 19 weeks or uh, only 36.34% of 2020. Uh, it's not that long, but to put it in perspective, what was what was COVID like at that time when 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 at, back in March 16th? You know, we had 4,500 people who had tested positive in the United States, and 88 had died, six of which were in California. The San Francisco Bay Area had moved to a shelter in place, and it was three days before Governor Newsom had issued the uh, stay-at-home order for the whole entire state. Fauci had just warned that the worst is just ahead of us. That was his first time really warning that publicly. Today, we have 8,518 dead due to COVID just here in California. And a very sobering statistic is that we have 141,430 who have died in the U.S. And we currently have 57,091 who are hospitalized. And so... You know, as we think about how much changed from the numbers back then to now, I want you to take us back to that initial moment and that that almost that realization of why jump into this, why create U.S. digital response when people the numbers weren't as bad as people had thought. What what got you to see this? And and maybe Raylene, could you talk to us about how you came together? Yeah, and, and I haven't actually heard the numbers from back then. It's it's really hard to like kind of put my head almost back there and see how, how much has changed since then. So the U.S. Digital Response, I would say, we started off a somewhat simple idea and a bit of a prediction. Um, it was founded by former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officers like Jen, who's here, um, and seasoned tech industry veterans, more like myself. And we kind of came together with this idea and thinking that with the pandemic, we were going to see government systems and government teams really be stretched beyond their current limits. And knowing all of the wonderful tech, really talented tech expertise we have in this country, is there something there? We can connect the people who have this expertise with the government teams who are really going to need that help to scale beyond 
problems that we've really never seen. So I think what happened was that was a thesis and we basically gave it a shot. We put a call out for help to technologists and we reached out to people working in government that we knew through our networks. And we're basically like, is there something here? Can we provide help? I would say um, as a team, we've really just been blown away by, by what we've been able to do on both sides. I think we've seen, on one hand, we've seen those government services be taxed in a way that's really unprecedented and in a way that goes way beyond where we may have initially thought around healthcare. We see systems being affected like government services like voting um, to accessing benefits and the social safety net in general. And I think we've been overwhelmed by the interest from technologists who raised their hands to help. So probably within our first few weeks, we had thousands of technologists all over the country raise their hands, sign up online just to say, hey, I'm here. Here are my skills. I want to help. And so I would say USDR has served as that bridge, that gap, to, to kind of bridge that gap between tech, technologists who want to help and governments in need. Um, and we've really seen that the model works. So we're just about past four months of existence, and we've had over 5,500 volunteers sign up to help from all over the country. We've actually taken on over 130 different projects with states and counties and city government teams in, um, at this point, 27 different states, which kind of is really amazing when I think about that. And as I said, it's all happened in just a matter of months. I mean, it's just phenomenal. You know, Raf, why did you join? What, what, what got you to do this effort? You, you have like endless job opportunities with your background. Yeah, I was one of the first volunteers uh, with USCR. Um, I'm the newbie on this panel. Uh, and uh, it's because I was spending all my time and energy doom scrolling and reading the news and um, really just worrying about the future. Uh, and that didn't feel good. My background is in tech uh, as an engineering executive. You know, like I have worked at a few different startups and they've all been amazing roller coasters. Uh, but the thought experiment that I run uh, when I'm thinking about leaving a group or joining group is um, if this group of people were to succeed beyond their wildest dreams, like what, what would the net impact on the world be? And um, in past companies, I've sometimes thought like, I feel pretty neutral about this. Like I love the people and the projects are interesting, but what is the net impact? And so I've been on kind of a quest for the past few years to find a way to make uh, that kind of impact at scale. Um, so like, I don't know, like back in March in this time frame that you're talking about, um, there was a lot of energy from the tech community, especially here in San Francisco, like the hacker news reading set um, to try and find ways to help. And it seemed to me like a lot of the things that people were working on were a little bit like solutions in search of problems. Like the solutions that are going to move the needle aren't going to be like something crazy innovative. It's going to be um, mass cooperation and uh, distribution and logistics and the kind of things that we invented government for, right? Um, so a mutual friend uh, told me about USDR. And um, when I read about it and heard about it, I was like, this is, this is the way we have to help governments. Um, let's help them be responsive to the need. And so I had like the immense privilege of having the time and the financial security to volunteer for free for a while uh, and the anxiety to uh, not sit around doing nothing. Uh, Raylene, walk us through, like, how does an engagement work? Like, what, what is, like, you can't just show up to, like, government offices these days, uh, even if you're wearing PPE and a mask. <laughs> what, like, what's, what's that virtual knock look like? And what's the pitch of the U.S. digital response to help someone understand what 
you know, technologists like you and RAF can offer? Yeah. So something that I think is um, kind of really interesting about our team is it is basically this unique mix, almost, I think, 50-50 of really experienced kind of technologists and people who have worked in government. And so from day one, we've had a bit of this DNA where we, we have really been really deliberate about kind of meeting government partners where they are. And by having half the team of people who've worked in government, they kind of just know who to reach out to, how to approach that first conversation, and how to offer help. Um, that said, I mean, the shortest, everything we do is remotely. Um, something that's kind of fun about the USDR team is many of us have never met in person, but have spent maybe every day working together for four months and may not get a chance to meet in person for a while longer. So we do everything over um, calls. And something in that first call, the first thing we usually ask is just, how can we help? So, you know, we have a government partner on the phone, on a Zoom call, and we say, what are you facing? Just tell us about the problems and we'll, we're just going to figure out a way to give you, give you help. Um, I think in the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism, both kind of like, wait, these are just free volunteers. Like, what can you really do? Um, and as the time has, as time has passed, we figured out that there's a few different things. Like sometimes we can just be the sort of friendly voice in the room where we've actually worked with government partners to help them evaluate you know, vendors and existing technology they have. And in some cases, we've been able to build tools for them. Um, and I think as we've, as we've taken on more projects and built things for one partner, we've also been able to show that to other, to other teams. Um, I think a big learning that we've had is a lot of the problems that we see are, are not unique to that one city or that state or that county. And maybe I'll even go so extreme as to say, I think nothing we see is unique to one place. Almost basically everything we see is probably applicable, applicable in another place. So now what we try to also do is when we get on that first call, we'll say, by the way, in case this is applicable to your team, here are like 10 other things we've seen from other government teams, and we're happy to help you in the same way. Um, and that also helps people get kind of started with thinking about different ways that we can help. Maybe we could just take a moment to, to kind of go around and starting with you, Raleen, and then uh, to Jen and to Raf. I'd love to kind of just hear about what has been a, a favorite project of yours that would give a sense of, of the breadth of type of projects that USDR works on. And how do, how do we think about it? Yeah, I think one of my favorite projects is almost hard to describe because it's not a single project. It's been actually more of a journey that I feel like I've been witnessing. So the context is like very early on in just the first few weeks that we existed, a friend of mine, her name is Reshma Kilnani, she just reached out, was very similar to Raf, was like, hey, can I do something here? Can I help? And we brought her on board and we said, hey, Reshma, there's this thing called unemployment insurance and pandemic unemployment assistance. And it's a big deal. A lot of people need help with unemployment and they need benefits. And she was like, great, I'm going to leave. And this is all at the state level or the county level or federal? How, how should we think about it? Yeah. So this in particular was at the state level where it was coming out of the CARES Act. There was a big, you know, CARES Act released millions, trillions of dollars to in benefits. And there was new programs that were being um, suppl like supplemental unemployment insurance. But in addition, there were a lot of people, there are a lot of people losing their jobs who need to just access unemployment, um, even under regular, even under without CARES Act um, funds. So at the state level, you know, she came in, knew nothing about any of this. And I feel like within weeks, and at this point, she's still working on it. It's been over four months. She quickly just became someone who you could watch, just learned everything she could about how these unemployment insurance systems worked. Um, she like worked with a, a team of volunteers. At this point, I think almost a dozen people are working with her on this. They ended up helping six different states in all different aspects, like 
setting up, helping improve their call center operations, bringing their websites back online. Um, and I think I've just watched this kind of experience of learning by doing. And, you know, at this point, that whole team is so passionate, passionate about unemployment and getting benefits to people in a way that I think most of them would maybe have never personally experienced um, in their own lives. So if somebody is going to, to get unemployment uh, insurance right now uh, um, or getting some benefits, they're actually interacting with the things that your teams have built. Yeah, well, so in some states, I think it, I would I would say more that we have helped multiple states kind of improve their current systems. I guess I'll give one example that maybe is really kind of more illustrative. Um, so one example is the user experience for applying for these benefits is really hard to understand. It can be slow. You can get stuck. You can kind of fall out and just maybe never complete your application. So what the, this team of volunteers did, the first thing they did was build a rapid kind of demo, like open source React application that just showed you what an easier to use application could look like. So this is an example where no states, you know, actually launched that code or use that application, but we presented this, you know, better, much better version application to multiple states. And in some cases, their own vendors or their own teams learn from our design and actually made their own applications easier to use. So that's kind of an example. It might not be us getting in the back and writing a bunch of code, but we'll kind of share either learnings or advice or best practices or just build demos for them to use. Um, and everything is open source and free to use. Jen, maybe could you, like, you know, there's kind of two parts of this I'd love for you to expand on. One is, you know, the, the work that you have really led in, in the creation of Code for America and, you know, helping people get food assistance and, and famously showed, you know, how many steps it takes to do something very basic. It's, 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 yeah. it's exhausting. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then also uh, tell us a little bit about one of your favorite projects and how you kind of see this tying in of, of this journey arc of what it actually means to get people the help they need. Yeah, it's, you know, USDR is sort of the next step in this journey that, that's been happening for a while of bringing people it from who, who, maybe they're from the technology industry, maybe they haven't had the chance to have to apply for public benefits um, into this world and getting them passionate about it. And, and uh, Reshma, as Raylene was talking about, is just a great example, and Raf is a great example here. Um, you don't know what it's like until you really do it. And um the great thing about the skills of the tech industry is that user experience is king. And that is simply what you do if you're a good technologist, you're a good designer, you have to understand it from the ground up. It's the, no PowerPoint slide can help you, right? Like you've got to go in there and do it. So um, yeah, it's been part of my journey to do things like trying to apply for SNAP benefits, which are you know very similar to what Raylene's describing where just I, you can't. I, I don't even want to tell you about it. I just want everybody here who's listening to go try it. And it's better now than it used to be. But try doing it. Try doing it on a mobile phone. Assume you don't have a computer at home with broadband internet access, as many people who are needing to apply for benefits do. And go through all those 212 questions. Not able to save your state. Try to understand what they mean and feel that sense of anxiety that I think so many people in America feel when they're trying to interact with these government systems. You, you will feel it even if it's not real to you, and you'll start to get a small sense of what we're put, putting people through. So to have this talent come together and say, you know, whether it's a Code for America or now, many, many more people through U.S. Digital Service and saying, I can make this better, um, it's, just, it's just it's so meaningful. It's, it, it's, uh, and I think it's just going to have a big impact. Um, some of these projects 
like Raylene was talking about, are, are big um, and they can affect you know all twelve, all, all fifty states. Some of them are tiny. I mean, we had a, a first, um, like that first week before we had all our systems set up, we had people in like the New Jersey Office of Innovation, for instance, throwing us tiny tasks like, can you scrape the data out of this thing because I'm going to need to put it into, uh, I, I need to use this in, in an application that we're building. And I, I, uh, we sent it on to um, one of our volunteers who happened to be a former Code for America fellow and kind of knew how government worked. And I believe what he did is just stayed up all night. Like we gave him the assignment on a Wednesday night and he delivered the thing on Thursday morning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that then the, our, our, our friend in, in New Jersey, Ross Dakin said, that's great. Here's the next task. I need a form put up for people to be able to use this. Like it's like basically a widget to understand if you were eligible for various um, assistance programs. And that same volunteer did that again now, like in a day and a half. And the the desire to help when when we're in a crisis like this will make you feel so much better uh, about the anxiety that you're feeling about what's going on around uh, around the, in, in the world, and just seeing both the public servants and the volunteers responding with such speed, such skill, such passion. Um, that, that's what this is all about for me. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a big deal here in, in USDR to have all of these people doing this. It almost feels like you're, you're, you're a form of digital first responders. Mm -hmm. is that, is that, does that resonate, Jen? I think that with all things, when you start to do first response, um, you're there for the immediate need. And then all those underlying conditions that are creating that need start to seep into you. So, you know, you can talk to Raft, you can talk to Irene, you can talk to Reshma, you can talk to all of the people at USDR about the process of, under, of, of coming in to do first response and then wanting to get to the core problems and how can we solve these for the longer term. Raf, when you, when you got you know, jumped in as a volunteer and you're thinking, hey, I look, I've got these skills and I, I, I got this stuff and you get dropped in and they're like, can you scrape this website? <laughs> and you're like, hey, that's an interview question. Well, <laughs> what, what, like, talk to us about what that first engagement was like and how you got your head around these kind of problems in trying to figure out how you could help. Hmm. It's funny. Um, for the first month, uh, I actually got sniped uh, by the volunteers team at USDR to just volunteer other volunteers. And so it was like this weird Ponzi scheme, right? Where I had just joined this organization and they were like, go recruit into our weird cult. Um, sorry to put it that spicily, but it felt a little bit like that. Uh, and it turned out the experience of interviewing volunteers was really wonderful. Like it was great. Um, the kind of people who want to work at USDR and volunteer and help cities and states, uh, they're amazing. They skew pretty experienced. Uh, they have the confidence that they can show up and deliver results pretty quickly. Um, and like someone used this term maybe the second week uh, that I was there that like USDR volunteers are people who run toward the fire, not away from it. And I was like, yes, that gives me life. Every time I get in the phone with one of these people or get in the Zoom call and have this interview with them, um, it's a person who like is making time out of their life and dropping their other interests and hobbies and things because they are trying to find a way to apply their skills to uh, what governments need. Um, so that actually was how I spent the first month. Uh, and it was a really amazing um, thing to do. What makes for um, that ability, you know, we, well, either way, it started this is 
you know, we often think of technologists and people as somewhat aloof and inability to, to, to engage. We think of uh, government as this bureaucracy and people who are just unwilling to be flexible and, and, and these things. And I'm wondering what what got what are the tricks the the, the methodologies the, the the sort of tactics that you use to really engage with people who are on, you know in a pandemic and and a disaster literally happening around them. Raf, maybe you, could could you keep carrying on the, the torch for us? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, well, in terms of the civil servants that we work with. Uh, I am new to working with uh, government entirely. I hadn't done it before. Uh, so I have learned a lot through this. Uh, and I had a lot of misconceptions about how stuff gets done uh, in local government before I started to volunteer. Um, the thing that makes today different from like every other time in uh, US government history, well, maybe that's not true. But for now, like the main thing is that governments are under tremendous amounts of public pressure to deliver results. Uh, it's very visible. Their constituents are hurting. Uh, COVID-19 dominates the news cycle. Um, and so, like, most of the engagements that USDR ends up doing come from governments who have found us or heard about us or saw a demo or something and want to see what we're about. Uh, so they're mostly inbound. Um, and those stakeholders, I think, it's hard to generalize about government uh, employees uh, in general, but the stakeholders who come to USDR tend to have, like, a very strong idea of what their pain points are and what the problem is and who their constituents are. And they actually feel incredibly passionate about delivering services that serve that public need. So um, coming from tech, something that I find really refreshing is that they often come uh, thinking about underserved communities, like first and foremost, right? And, and like in tech and startups, you don't really think about users who can't pay you. It's not, it doesn't serve the profit motive, but government doesn't do that. Governments are really good at this especially, you know, now months later uh, that we know that COVID-19 has a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Uh, it's really wonderful to talk to um, governor, government partners who are thinking about them first and foremost and trying to find ways to make benefits more accessible and so on and so forth. So um, really common uh, areas where um, we get asked for help are uh, include like benefit discovery and eligibility and um, food security, just making sure that people are able to eat every day, um, as well as homeless outreach. These are pretty common uh, issues that, um, that tend to come across our desk. And I guess maybe like to elaborate for a minute on it, I had also heard that like government moves slow and procurement will be a nightmare and stuff like that. And I'm sure that like a lot of the time, that's not not true, right? Um, but having seen enough projects um, come to us through intake and get scoped and then get delivered, I've seen firsthand how like strongly motivated civil servants, they can actually move really fast when they need to, and they are expert bureaucracy hackers inside of their own organizations. If, they, if there's something they need to manifest, they will clear the way and make it happen. Really, really how about to, to you? Yeah, I think the, the thing I was thinking when, when you asked around, basically it's, you have the tech world, you have this government world. And I think, as Raf said, we've found ourselves sitting in this really unique spot in the middle. And I think where we've had the most um, impact and just where you just kind of see the lights flashing on both sides is that the fact that we're meeting around getting concrete value and something delivered as quickly as possible. And so you kind of reduce everything down to the common denominator of what is the problem and what is the like fastest and most you know 
best, cheapest, fastest solution that we can collectively build to get there. And I think every time we see that happen, both sides, like everyone involved just kind of, there's a new fire in their step. And like a couple of, a couple of things came to mind that, you know, we were in a meeting once and uh, one of the volunteers who does a lot of work with projects, you know, he has worked in the government for a long time. He's worked at the vendor side, he's worked in government agencies. And he was just like, this work has helped help even me like read like rethink what's possible when it comes to working with government and technology and part of that is just you can move really fast but we're also just relying on a lot of things that are sort of tried and true in the startup playbook like things like build a prototype first or a demo and like look the look and feel and the interactability of a demo is so powerful and it kind of grounds the conversation use off-the-shelf software tools. There's so many things out there that already work, and it's so, it's so much easier to customize something than to build something from scratch. Use open source, right? Part of what's special about um, our group is it's all volunteers. So every project is built entirely by volunteers, and as a result, by making it open source and using off-the-shelf software, you can actually swap in volunteers as they move on to other things in their lives and not interrupt that kind of the service or that project. Um, so we're, I feel like what we're trying to do is just apply a lot of things that are really tried and true in the industry. And, in, and they're just, they're coming, they're coming at the right time and they're feeling really like novel and critical. But part of that is just like, we, we work towards each other to find the like minimum touch point that works. Um, and something I'll also say, just kind of from my view of the tech industry is, you know, ev with every day that passes, technology is only getting more powerful, cheaper, easier to use and easier to scale. And so I think like we're at a time now where to build some of the systems that exist in government today, if we were building them from scratch with today's technology, we could definitely do it at a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time. And so what we're trying to do as a group is, is show a little bit of that path there. And even if there's a you know, very large layer cake of 30-year-old you know, software, we'll just figure out where in that layer cake can we kind of replace the topping here and there and just try to make the whole system easier and more responsive as we go. You know, Raylene just said something really important I want to highlight, which is rethinking what's possible. And we're at a moment where so much of that is needed. We have neglected the machinery of government for many, many decades. And I don't just mean the technology. The tech, it's been widely reported that, uh, you know, these uh, unemployment systems that are supposed to cut checks for people who are out of work are written in COBOL. And that's true. And um, true. Could, could you say what COBOL is for those that, that, that? Yeah. So, I mean, COBOL is a very old programming language. People like to say it was written, you know, in, in, in 1959. It's actually more like a 70s, 80s, 90s technology. Um, but, you know, it's not flexible. It's not scalable. It's a perfectly fine thing. It's like, you know, my grandfather's, you know, uh, old Buick is a perfectly fine car. I love it. But it was not designed to do what a modern electric car is does and so to manage a pandemic yeah well, <laughs> yeah we're mixing metaphors here at <laughs> um but uh there, there's been this neglect that i think you know the usdr community now if you're you know as Raylene says half of about half of them are from the tech industry and have um been just generally at the cutting edge of technology because they had to build things that scaled hugely i was, I was talking um with someone the other day about like you know, something like a 35-fold increase in need for unemployment in certain states. You know, what startup scales 35x in a couple of months? And actually, you know, if you think about it, lots of startups, if they hit that knee of that, you know, that curve, they do have to scale that fast and that far. And that's exactly what Raylene was just saying. 
Um, but you, it's very hard to make a COBOL system do that. So there's been this neglect, there's been this unwillingness to update the technology, but also this accretion of policy layers and regulation that make it very hard to even change the wording on a, on a question to make it clearer so that you don't have people calling and saying, I don't know how to answer this question. I'm afraid my application is going to get rejected because it's unclear what you mean here. And like that flexibility, that agility is really necessary. So there's just enormous layers where we need to rethink what's possible and show that something different is possible from the tech to the policy to how tech and uh, government work together. And if we don't take advantage of the crisis to rethink those things, I, excuse my language, but I think we're, we're, we're in, well, I'll say it nicely. I think we're in even hot, hotter water um, after this pandemic if, if we don't use that opportunity. And that's what I, I really hope is happening as you have this um, cross uh, you know pollination between between these groups it's not it's not tech as the savior of government by any means it's the possibility for this cross pollination to broadly rethink what's possible and and in, in increase our participation and our, our buy-in to it you're listening to a podcast of inforum an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. One of the things I'm wondering about, you know, Jen, you've also been on the cutting edge of this for, for more than a decade. You, you know, I see all of you nodding your heads those, those that are on the radio can't always see this, but, but the, the, this idea that government's moving fast and we're seeing this changing paradigm. You know, Jen, have you been surprised at this, this moment of time and the speed at which things are actually taking place? Because on the, 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 we have this other narrative also where we see that the numbers keep going up and services aren't being delivered to keep up at the speed and the pace at which COVID is, is harming communities. When, when we started taking phone calls from government partners in that first week, I was hugely surprised because um, there were people saying, uh, I need somebody to you know, do a data dashboard to help us understand the impact that's coming and I need it tomorrow. And we gave them someone the next day and they used them that day. And that is not been my experience in working in government. It was the willingness to just like, I don't care, we're just gonna get this done, lives are at stake, was, I, I shouldn't say surprising, it, it was appropriate, but I was just so proud of the response of public servants to the crisis and so proud that we were able to help them that quickly. And the normal questions of, you know, I need them to sign this thing. And do they have a security clearance? And like a lot of that really kind of was a not, not at the forefront, right? You're, they were putting the need first and the compliance second, which is what you want to see. I am also surprised though, at the number of places in which we are not willing to, not, and I say we in a broad sense, I, um, where governments also um, are not willing to throw out the, the rule book or the playbook and it's holding back. And there's still, you know, um, I'm not speaking at any particular state here, but I know there are places where there's still a 10 day delay before uh, contact tracing starts when you know of a positive um, uh, test result. That's because we're still following what the rule books say instead of meeting the need. And I'm surprised that there are not more people saying, screw the rule book, let's meet the need. 
But why, 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 why do you think that is the case? I mean, you have some of the best technologists, and I don't, I don't mean this as a, a to make this a political statement. I, I actually genuinely mean it. Of, of, you know, we have a federal government who needs help everywhere. We have states, and, and maybe, maybe another way to ask it is, those governments who are parts of the government that do not call, what, what prevents them from getting it? Yeah, so I actually, so I'm going to take this in a, a little bit of a, a different direction because of something I was thinking about. I would say, so for one, I think we do work with a bunch of government agencies at all levels. So one example is we talk to the team at U.S. Digital Service quite a bit, and they're at the federal level. And I think part of what, as Raf mentioned, a lot of what drove a lot of our projects were people coming to us for help. Um, and we found that at the state, at the local level, especially cities, counties, and states, a lot of them don't have in-house digital service teams. And so we can kind of have sort of disproportionate impact quickly because we're really filling this gap that doesn't exist. And I think at the federal level and in some states that have their own in-house you know, digital service teams and have technologists in-house, you know, they have a lot of things going on. And in some ways, it's another where we can maybe be another voice in the room, which is which is helpful, but can sometimes be, you know, another cook in the kitchen. So I think we're trying to go where we think we can be most useful. Um, that said, I think what's so powerful about technology is that it can scale at all levels. And it, it's in the end, it's code, right? It's code, it's design, it's like learnings, it's techniques. It's it, there are things that are very portable. So um, with UI as an example of unemployment insurance, it's something that's happening at the state level, but there's also a federal department of labor and they think about unemployment across the country. And so we can talk to these different groups at multiple levels um, and, and also states, sorry, and cities and counties may also care about how um, unemployment is, is administered because it affects all the residents. So we can end up playing a little bit of this bridge between the different um, places geographically, but also at different levels of government. And I'm, I'm really excited about that because I think we're happy to just be a partner um, and, and share information. The other thing I was gonna say as I was listening is, I do think um, just to put my kind of tech hat on before all this, one of the things I've realized is just a really strong sense of empathy and, and kind of once you see the inside, you realize how hard it is. So, you know, I do think there's a lot we can be doing at the macro level to make pure procurement a lot easier to kind of think about the, the burden of implementation of policy. But I also want to say that there are so many difficult constraints to work with in the systems that we have today. And even the most dedicated and tech savvy and really passionate civil servants run into these issues and they're really hard. And, and I, I love the example Jen gave of like, imagine a startup scaling overnight. What's funny is I've talked to friends about this and said, hey, imagine if your software scaled 10,000% overnight, would it hold up? And I actually think for a lot of people, it would not. It, it's, don't take that for granted, it's not that easy. And I think if people who've worked at large software companies, the example I always give is think about the fail whale of, of early Twitter days. And just, it was down, like you just showed a cartoon and the site wouldn't work. And in some ways, like, not that I, I think we should expect more of government, like we shouldn't expect the fail whale of our benefits, but there's some empathy there that software is not easy and it's even harder when you have these really core problems on the line and it's not just, you know, loading your social media feed. Um, so I think something that's really special about our volunteers too is they come in with so much humility. Like we come into the room and we say, hey, we're not here to sell you anything. Everything is free. We're just volunteers. And if you don't need our help, don't worry about it. We'll just like get off the phone and like not bother you. Um, and I think that's also been really one of the best ways that we've actually been able to partner is because we come in with that attitude. 
How, how do you, do you test for that, Ray, Raylene? Do you, do, do you, when you're interviewing people, do, do you test for that? Or, cause that, that is not the typical thing you hear of the stereotypical, frankly, the tech bro. So how, how what, tell, how, tell us more. Yeah, well, actually, I want to ask Raf because he, he was kind of joking about this, but it's sort of true. We do have the Ponzi scheme of volunteers interviewing other volunteers. So, yeah, what do you think, Raf? Uh, humility is definitely one of the most important things that we look for. The magic words, and I'll share them with you because we're all friends here, uh, is, yeah, uh, no job is too small for me. I will roll up my sleeves and do anything. Um, and we hear that from a lot of people, even without, like, us, you know, prompting them, right? Uh, they came to USDR because they just want to be helpful. Um, I think that's one really big uh, qualification that we tend to look for when we do our volunteer interviews. Um, there, there's actually a small handful of things that we look for, um, and I can talk more about that too. Like the humility is absolutely important because it uh, it lets us like without that we do become that tech bro and we show up and kick in the door and we're like we're the tech amazing tech people like we will solve your problems for you, uh, and it really dishonors uh, the role of our partners right who are the experts they know their pain points and they know their constituencies, and they know the problem way better than we do. Um, so we look for that for sure. We also look for um, like a bias toward action, uh, like um, by which I mean, when you're a technical person and you're not talking to another technical person, it, it's true even for two technical people talking to each other, right? Like it's easy to um, understand the problem wrong and build the wrong thing. Uh, and when you do that, You've built, you've wasted a bunch of time doing something that doesn't really work. So um, both the skill of like being able to talk about the big problem and see the seams in it that let you decompose it into little slices that you can ship independently, each of which gives you more information about what to do next, I think is incredibly important. Um, and also like, it, it sounds cliche, but it's incredibly true. Like um, being a good communicator is really important and especially being a good listener. Uh, I think like my favorite experience when I interview volunteers, which I still do these days, um, is when they begin to flip the interview script around on me a little bit and start asking the questions that they need to have answered to uh, understand what USDR is about and um, how they might get involved and what's the time commitment, what does it take to be successful here, and still make it feel like a natural conversation. That is an incredible skill. Uh, and when I see that, um, I know that I can confidently go to a government partner and put this person in front of them. It's it's almost like tryouts for the Justice League. It's like, do you have the right core kind of DNA to 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 do these kind of roles? I'm, I'm curious, staying on this, Raph. You know, it's very easy in technology these days to look for this. You know, the the easy solution that we all think is there. Like people keep talking about AI and machine learning and these type of things. Uh, I'm actually curious, like you know, what what as 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 people are looking for some of these very powerful things and some of the things that we've seen, you know, that were mentioned earlier, just got to stay up all night scraping websites. <laughs> give us a, give us some visibility into the, 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 the tools and the technologies that actually really work and the stuff that like, what's, what's it really like out there? It's really boring. And I mean that in the best possible way, the, the tech that we use is not, it's not, incredible uh, AI. It's not GPT-3. It's not the newest thing that you have seen on Hacker News. Um, they are composable technologies that you can glue together until you get the shape of the thing that you want. Hey, I think Airtable is super exciting. So <laughs> we... Airtable powers a ridiculous number of like government projects that we've worked on <laughs> with our partners. It's crazy. Um, 
I think sometimes the people who don't work in tech, uh, including many, uh, many, many governments, it can feel like when you're trying to build or buy tech, it's like building or buying a bridge or a skyscraper. Like there's no value until you get the whole thing, right? Uh, it's this huge monolith and it tends to be very expensive. But the reason that startups are able to move so quickly is because they have like a big box of Legos and they know how to snap them together and they have a roll of duct tape. And so like in practice, um, what startups do and what we do when we are uh, beginning a project with one of our partners is to look for the open source tools and look for the APIs, SaaS services um, that are cheap and that let us just kind of like glue together the basic components that we need uh, to until it kind of looks like the thing that we need, right? Um, and that, that can only take a few days. That could take up to a week. And then when we put it in front of our partners, they have something to react to and to critique and to click around with and say, this is amazing, or I don't like this, or what does this button do? I don't know, I'll press it anyway. Um, but rapid prototyping really, uh, it really kind of like inverts this misconception that, um, especially I think in government, that technology takes months or years to ship when it can really just take days or weeks. Yeah, I think one other thing, kind of a good analogy is like, I, so yes, I think it's boring, but I'll actually, uh, no, I don't think it's boring. I should clarify. I think the analogy is more like, you know, it's kind of like theoretical studies versus like applied studies. And so it's, I don't think applied sciences are less interesting, right? It's just different. And I think what's really, really neat about kind of everything we do is you think the, the end user is like, very like very much at the forefront of your mind right so you're coming in you have your toolbox of off-the-shelf software open source whatever it is and by the way if ai were the right tool we would use it it's more about what is actually the right tool for the job um and one example i love to give is um in the issue you know thinking about food security and feeding people i think it's so important right now and we happened to work with one county in texas where they were working with a local produce distributor who had food to give away and they were or to sell at low cost. And their problem was we have all this food, we have it in boxes, we want to get it out to people. The problem is how do people find out about where this food is and how do they sign up for these food boxes? And that is not, doesn't seem like it's not a cutting edge technology problem, but it is very much a technology problem and an interesting one. There's the design considerations, there's kind of like the different users that have to log in, you know, the supplier, the family that needs money. And our team, basically, a team of volunteers built a tool for that in a, in a few weeks. And, you know, within weeks, we had it launched in D.C. We had a similar tool launched in Tulsa. Um, and in D.C. in particular, what, within one day of launching that tool, 1,400 families signed up for food. And I think for that team, I, I haven't asked them for a quote or anything, but I would guess that even though they were using off-the-shelf software and React components and open source and using Stripe for payments and kind of all of the things that exist. Um, and they weren't using any AI, they weren't using anything, you know, cutting edge. I think the satisfaction of getting that service online and seeing that you were feeding 1400 families in one day, like that kind of applied impact is so powerful. Um, but I think for me, that actually feels novel and new like every day. Um, because I actually feel like you don't necessarily see that impact sometimes working within big companies. If you are working on an AI engine, for example, it's very abstract sometimes who's actually experiencing the impact of that algorithmic change, right? It's, it's many, many steps removed. And here it's like tool, launch, people, you know, get fed or get money, get benefits. 
We have some great questions coming in, and for those that want to get a question in, we'll try to answer as many of these as possible. Please put them in the comments or the the um, uh, or the question section in your respective place you're viewing the uh, this program. Uh, this comes from James on YouTube. Uh, how do you maintain focus, motivation when you work so hard, but then see politicians and citizens ignoring the science and guidance, like wearing masks, or worse, fight against it? How do you, how do you take care take that on? Uh, Raylene, would you like to take a shot at that? Yeah, I think part of it is. Um... So I do think it's tough to read the news at times. And I think something that we all experience is, especially I would say in the first few months, just every day it felt like the guidance was changing or something was happening and, and the resurgence and all of that. So there is a lot happening in the world and it's tough and a lot of it isn't great. But I think what kind of brings us back to the work is the fact that when we talk to our partners and the people they're serving, they're, these are real people that need help. And we see the problems in front of us that if we can just work hard at them and solve them, you can actually see the impact right away. And we know that it's, it's, you know, being helpful to people. So I think in the end, that's what's driving our work is like, we know it's channeled directly into like impact for people. Um, that said, I also think our work is, is trying to contribute to this broader um, narrative and push for better technology and government that, that Jen articulated so well earlier. It's, you know, I think of all of our, all of our things are contributions into showing that, Hey, Yes, you can build a more incremental, you know, um, like agile, like scalable benefit system and that these things are possible. So I think we have double motivation, both the kind of immediate results, but also the feeling that we are trying to contribute to something that I think can hopefully change um, the field and, and help government teams um, see something different. That's rethink what's possible. How about you, Raf? You know, you're talking to these volunteers and they're kind of doing the sprint. How do they get back up in the morning when they see a headlines, frankly, discounting a, a pandemic or not buying into the, that this is a real issue? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, I feel like it doesn't, I think we all reckon with this in our own ways, but first and foremost, every volunteer at USDR is working on something that is helping with the problem. And it's very satisfying to, uh, it, I think without being able to help you, you feel helpless. You feel like the world is happening to you and you can't do very much about it. Um, I find that being at USDR, and it's a common experience with many of the people who I work with and who I interview, uh, that they came because like, their way of coping is to volunteer. Their way of coping is to help out. Their way of coping is to contribute their skills to something that they know for a fact, if it ships, is going to help people at scale, which is exactly what government does. Um, I also uninstalled my social media apps, so I had to cut myself off the doom scrolling the hard way. Um, but maybe another thing, and this isn't directly USDR related, uh, is that like 80% of Americans are in favor of national mask mandates. And I think like when you get away from um, the, the, the doom scrolling and the news cycles, you see that there are a lot of helpers in this country and a lot of people who are trying to make the right thing happen, not only for themselves, but also for the people around them. And I think our partners who work in government like exemplify that in one way and our volunteers exemplify that in, in a totally different way. Jen, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the ethical implications of technology building for only one population versus the broad base that government is responsible to serve, especially those that are underserved in uh, uh, different forms. We just celebrated the 30th anniversary of the American Disabilities Act and still don't have great enforcement of that. 
Uh, we have those that are under siege because of their immigration status or perceived status on immigration. How, how, what, how do you think about that when you're building tech and how, how do you make sure that we're, we're really building um, for everyone? I think one of the things I'm um, proudest of that in general, I think tech has been able to um, really just synergize with government on. I've just seen this happen so many times and I, and I think the language is there now um, to uh, for have both sides really understand each other is that I think tech has built simple interfaces that work um, and they've gotten good at that in the consumer tech world. And then they've been able to bring that into government and say, wait, when we build to meet government needs that's focused on compliance, we end up with these big overscoped things. But if we build actually for the most marginalized first, if we, if we have to make it simple and easy to use because perhaps somebody has a disability, perhaps somebody doesn't have, you know, they have a limited phone, they, you know, they, there's all these different ways in which a simple, clear interface works for someone who's marginalized better, um, there's uh, many different ways this is true, then we build to work, it works for everybody. So we, get, we have to start there. And I think as much as we want to talk about how there's these wide, wide gulf between tech and government, this is a great example of where there's actually a common set of values, um, a common approach, uh, and now I think a common commitment more, much more broadly to doing it this way. Lynn, Lynn has... Um... Uh, on Lynn on YouTube has a question, which is in similar time, it's like, how does government be harnessed beyond, how, how can what you've built be really harnessed post the pandemic? Uh, and, you know, Tara also on YouTube asked a similar question, which is, how do we make sure that we continue to help uh, local and state governments optimize their services in normal times, especially those that are strapped for resources and money? Uh, Fran and Lynn, uh, as I mentioned, also have similar questions. How, how do we think about the eventual one day that when we get past this, but budgets are crushed and still continuing to take this momentum and the energy that you've really built and continue to power that? Uh, Raylene? I think, yeah, I think one thing we've learned, uh, it's you know only four months in, but I think we've learned that this pandemic and the impact of the crisis is something that I think is going to last for a really long time. And I actually mean that not just just specifically on healthcare, but also there are so many things that I see us um, helping transition through a one-way door. So one example I'll give is um, in New Jersey, we were helping them uh, look at their um, SNAP benefits, so food access benefits. And previously, you would have required an in-person interview and a like wet signature or like a paper that you had to mail in. And I think that's an example where in this time, you can't do that anymore. So we have to go digital and we have to be able to submit an online form or an online application. And so that's something that we help them kind of transition over. And I look at that and I think, you know, any government team or any process that's going digital like that, there's no reason to go back the other way, right? So I think this has kind of made us all rethink how we work and how do we kind of interact in the digital world and how do we, a lot of these are one-way doors, I think, for the good, um, kind of good changes. So I think that's part of it. I think the other one is what um, the idea that, again, it's technology is only getting cheaper and easier to scale. And I think if we use this as an opportunity to, to transition old systems into new ones, I think a lot of these kind of larger systems, big and small, are going to be on a new 
kind of platform and like future changes will be easier and cheaper. Um, and so that's something I think we try to impress upon um, the, the systems that we work with is I think right now we're at a point where it seems impossible, but yes, you can have faster, cheaper and better technical solutions um, at the same time. And so I think my hope is that, you know, it's, it's, we can kind of use this moment to actually usher in kind of new technology that is just going to scale and work better. Um, I think the other thing uh, that I would say is um, it's very difficult, but I think in, in some ways this crisis has really shined a light on a lot of populations that were not well served by technology or by accessibility to services in, in the physical world. And now I think it's going to usher in, I think, really interesting ways to interact online that I hope are going to be more accessible to everyone. So I'm optimistic. I think there's actually a lot of invention that needs to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what these new interaction paradigms are and different ways that you can interact with government services um, online that didn't previously exist. Raf, how about from your perspective as you work with all these volunteers and, and, and you know, they go in, are they, are they changed? Are they, you know, thinking of a career change? Are you thinking about a career change in, in these, like through this experience? Uh, it's not uncommon for that to happen, actually. Um, I think I came to this project with a very pessimistic view that government technology would never change. Um, kind of like how I feel about climate change when I feel at my most pessimistic too, right? This problem is too big. What can we do about it? And the experience of being on the ground, working on projects, working with my project leads and with the engineers and designers and content strategists uh, who actually get things done, um, our shared experience is that it actually is not very hard to make incremental differences. Like you can go from, I joined and I don't know what's happening to I shipped something for a major city uh, that has impacted 10,000 people uh, in the span of a month. And that's really transformational. I think that's really special. Um, it's that, and it's also, frankly, the exposure to people like Jen and the other co-founders and yourself and the people who have really paved the way ahead of us, right, in, in the GovTech world. Uh, there would be no USDR if there was no healthcare.gov intervention or ATNF or USDS uh, or all these local innovation and technology offices that are popping up in different cities around the US. Um, like, USDR is not this crazy anomaly that, like, is completely unique. Uh, it exists in this ecosystem where... Tons of different individuals are bringing something to the table in the hope of like making not incredibly fast change sometimes, uh, but like gradual and persistent and lasting changes to these legacy systems um, that like when you make them better, they are better for a really, really long time. We've actually had several volunteers who uh, like wrapped it up at USDR because you got to get paid at some point and who went and uh, joined USDS and ACNF uh, and people have gone and joined the Biden campaign um, and other like areas in the policy and political worlds. I think it's, it's not uncommon at all to have this experience and have your mind be completely changed about, about how the world works. If I might just add for the um, viewers, you know, United States Digital Service and 18F, two really great groups at the federal government that are doing this kind of work um, in a very sustainable long-term way. Uh, but I, if I may also add, there would probably also be no USDR without our own interviewer here, DJ, who was a model for all of us and his response working with the state of California and inspiring the rest of us to get involved. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, as we just have a little bit of limited time left, I, I want to return back to the 141,430 that have 
died um, due to COVID. And, uh, you know, it's an undercount and it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's just a tough thing to think about the names behind those, those data points. But I also want to realize, recognize what a powerful beacon of light and hope that, that, that what you've created is. And so maybe to kind of carry us out for a little bit, um, give us a, give us a glimmer of what gets you up in the morning and challenges and drives you to keep working on this. What's a glimmer of hope for you as you look forward? It's a big question. And I think you have to go looking for it. It's, it's just, it's just a weird time. Um, my glimmer of hope is that uh, I think that crisis creates change. Like, Sometimes you have to feel the pain of a broken system before you get enough motivation and like collective desire to fix it. Um, it's certainly true in startups, right? Where like until your website goes down for 12 hours, you don't build your SRE team to keep it up all the time. Until something makes you nervous about your security uh, situation, it's hard to like really find the willpower to convene a security team. Um, and I think that's true like throughout history as well, right? Like the New Deal back in the 30s, the United Nations were, they were both responses to world crises. Um, this is happening recently too. Like uh, in two weeks in June, public opinion on Black Lives Matter increased like as much in those two weeks as it had in the preceding two years put together. It just reached its inflection point. Um, so I guess like the glimmer of hope I'm looking for is that this crisis sucks. Like the problem that is creating all this urgency is not a good problem but the urgency itself can be a catalyst that can really transform society. And it's because of it that we're beginning to talk about um, better healthcare systems that serve everybody and a refresh to our unemployment insurance system uh, and how we will be more prepared for the next pandemic, hopefully. Raylene, what's your, what's your glimmer of hope? I think a lot about what technology means in today's society. And I, I so I, maybe I'm, I am an optimist, actually, I will say that. Um, so I think of all, a lot of the different layers here, I think of, one thing that we talk about all the time is that a lot of tech problems are not perceived to be technology problems and they're not fundamentally technology problems, but they can be helped by technology. So that's something that I just think a lot about a lot is that, you know, when you think of technology, it doesn't have to be the AI engine that automatically answers your phone. It could be the tool on someone's computer that helps you triage and, you know, sort and respond to phone calls faster. Um, so I think there's something here that's happening with people just seeing technology in a different way and the fact that it's so much more accessible to people um, across the country and really across the world. So that gives me a lot of hope. Um, I also think, uh, I mentioned, I think there will be, I think there's going to be some invention that, a lot of invention that will happen in technology too. I don't think we're done innovating and I think um, constraints also breed creativity. So um, I think we're just starting to see it with some interesting interaction models online, but I think that we'll come out of this with a better understanding of how to use technology in all parts of our lives, but hopefully also some new ways that we can use it, maybe even just for entertainment or ways to kind of um, increase community and connection. What Raf said really resonates with me. I, I think back to uh, something that occurred to me back in 2016, which was the status quo isn't worth protecting. Um, it's been bad. It's been real bad. And maybe our eyes haven't been open to it. And when I say it's been bad, um, like my world that expresses itself as like, yeah, nobody was talking about the fact that our unemployment systems weren't, weren't they weren't, they didn't meet the need then. They didn't need, need the need before we had this crisis. 
and nobody was doing anything about it. Not uh, just despite uh, the clear, you know, awareness uh, of it. And um, it's it's a it's a crazy thing to say that something that's just truly awful is what's spurring hope. I um, and I hope I'm not rephrasing your your thing in some sort of crazy way, Raph. But like. It is not until your eyes are really open to how poorly our society works for so many people, whether it's benefits or inequality or lack of jobs, um, that you can start to fix those problems. Um, and I, I just I, I have to believe that this is the beginning of building back better. It reminds me of a, a quote, Jenna, a person, Jenna, you and I have been able to work with, Secretary Carter, uh, who's Secretary of Defense, and uh, says, you know, security is like air. You you know you only need it when you don't have it. And it feels like we're in one of those moments where we realize we don't have the air and the oxygen that we should for all the population. You know, as, as our time wraps up, it it is an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? It would be great to hear each of yours. Jen, why don't you kick us off? I have a very specific one that I've been thinking a lot about, and it's that the uh, I'd like to give the Minneapolis Police Department or the city of Minneapolis a fantastic design and software team that could help them build the new systems that will power the reinvention of public safety and public services and, of course, social services. Here, here. Raf, what's your 60-second idea? Oh, man. I thought about this for a long time. Um it has always seemed crazy to me that the way that we talk is for me to have an idea and then turn it into words. And then I'd say the words and then you listen to them and then you have an idea and I have no idea whether or not like they're anything like each other. So I would like for us to develop some kind of like perfect telepathy, right? That like gives you the ability to truly understand what someone else is saying. We don't have that yet. So I think the next best thing is probably if we just taught everyone, uh, kids in kindergarten, how to do reflective listening, which I think is the secret weapon. and like just creates empathetic exchanges where, you know, if you say something that's a little bit confusing to me, I'll say, let me replay that back to you just to make sure I understand. And I'll say it and you'll be like, mm, no, this is what I meant instead. And over time you kind of converge to the right thing, right? What if everyone could do that? I think our society would be completely different. Yeah, this was such a hard question. <laughs> um, okay, so I don't know how this would actually be implemented, but I'll, it's a very idealistic, optimistic view. Um, I actually think a lot about climate change as the other, I was actually thinking a lot about working on um, problems in that space when all of this happened and it hasn't gone away, kind of just thinking about the world and our impact on it. So the idea that I would love to get out there is just, can we as a society think of a way to live that's not extractively with the planet and with each other? Um, I think that over time, just society and our industries, our energy industries, our food industries, everything has become very extractive. It's one way. It just sort of assumes a bit of a zero sum where we pull things out of the earth or from each other. Um, and I think there's probably some way to live more sustainably and more circularly. So that's something I think a lot about. Well, that's fantastic. Each of you, I want to thank you. Raylene Young, Jennifer Palka, Raph Lee, for joining us today at the Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Y'all are heroes in my mind. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for bringing teams together to help our communities. Thank you for just everything you've done. It's, it's incredible. You know, if you work in public service and your government team seeks assistance with adapting to the pandemic, you can request help at usdigitalresponse.org. 
If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit thecommonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm DJ Patil. Thank you and stay safe.